Well, good morning, Tiny Ridge Church. I invite you to return to your seat. Sometimes get so bogged down when you're reading scripture in the little details of each verse that you lose sight of the big picture. And I think that that's especially true in a book like Hebrews. Hebrews is so theologically rich and yet dense, meaning that there are a lot of really wonderful, deep spiritual truths packed together that we sometimes lose sight of what we've been saying, and we need to catch our breath and remind ourselves where we've been and what the author's been teaching us. So with that in mind, I want to just take a minute to just run us through where we've been so far in the book of Hebrews, which written by an unknown author to the first century a group, a church of first century Jewish Christians, and his intention is to persuade them to hold fast to Jesus Christ through faith and resist the temptation to return to the roots of their Jewish religion. Over and over again, he exhorts them, hold fast by faith to Jesus. Mature in the faith and do not drift away or turn away from him. He begins his sermon, which is what this kind of is. It's a, it's a sermon-like book. He begins his sermon by presenting Jesus as superior. First of all, he's superior to the angels. And then he's superior to Moses, the, the servant of God, the, the patriarch, if you will, Abraham being the patriarch, and he's the one that they really look to as the great prophet of the Old Testament. And then he begins to show him as superior to the priests that served under the Mosaic law. He shows that he is superior because he is of a superior order, the order of Melchizedek. He's superior high priest because he lives forever to intercede for his people, as opposed to the Levitical priests who, who priesthood ended upon death. And now we're in the midst of the author's argument that Jesus is the superior high priest of a new and superior covenant, different and better than the covenant that he made with the nation of Israel. And one overarching theme that we see throughout the book is that the people of God, all human beings, in fact, all human beings, need to draw near to God. Men, women, boys, girls, everyone needs to draw near to God. God has implanted within them that hole that needs to be filled with God. The problem is, because of our fallen condition, because of our sin, we can't do it without an intermediary. We need a high priest, an intercessor, holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. 
need a better covenant with God than the one He made with the nation of Israel. And we need a better mediator of this new covenant. One who is sufficient in every way to bring us to God. And as the author of Hebrews says in, in chapter 8, verse 1, we indeed have such a high priest. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, who is ministering in the heavenly holy place. The key verse in today's passage is Hebrews 8, 6, where the author tells us that Christ has obtained a superior ministry to that of the earthly high priest because he is the mediator of a new covenant that is better than the old. And therefore, this morning, we're going to focus on both that old covenant and the new covenant that is superior to the old and that is based on the promises that God gave through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. Here's what I want you to take away from today's message. Jesus Christ is a superior high priest and a superior covenant connected on superior promises. Superior high priest and a superior covenant based on superior promises. My prayer for you this past week and, and this morning is that you will be overwhelmingly captivated by this amazingly awesome God who ordained this glorious, gracious covenant of redemption before the world began. And He's carrying out this plan through Jesus Christ, our High Priest, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you will humbly submit your lives to Jesus Christ in faithful obedience to Him, growing in your knowledge of Him, and living lives worthy of His calling. And finally, I pray that you, if you are a child of God, will draw comfort from the knowledge that your superior Savior will preserve you to persevere in this covenant until the end of your life. The passage for today is Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 13. As Pastor Jason said earlier today, we value and delight in the Word of God. And one of the ways that we show that is by standing as we read today's sermon text. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with him when he says, and now here's the quotation from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward all their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And then the author makes this one summarizing comment in verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as I said, verses 8 through 12 are a quotation of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, in which God, centuries before the birth of Jesus, announces through his prophets his intention to establish a new covenant with Israel. Now, there's disagreement among commentators about who this covenant is really with. Is it with the nation of Israel, or is it with, as Paul says in Galatians 3, that the new Israel, the Israel that are members of that uh, covenant by faith, that if you are in Christ, you are truly the children of Abraham. And that's the way that I take this, as it is a covenant with these people, the people that are Israelite by faith. Now, it will include many of those in Israel, especially right before the coming of Jesus. Many people in Israel will come into this new covenant. So that's who he's establishing the covenant with. He says it's going to be different than the old one. And then, in verse 7, he argues that the announcement of this new covenant implies that the old one is faulty. Because he says that if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant. So the very existence of the new covenant implies that the old one was faulty. Now, it's not as if God had this established this covenant with Israel and he went, uh-oh, it's not working. I messed up. I need to go back to the drawing board and quickly come up with a plan B. That's ridiculous, isn't it? The old covenant was never intended to be permanent. It was always intended to point forward in time to the second covenant. Everything in the old covenant law, the priests, the offerings, the sacrifices, were intended to point forward to Jesus Christ and all that we have in Him in the new covenant. It's like a temporary placeholder until just the right time in history when Christ came into the world. And through his life and death and resurrection and ascension and his high priesthood, he inaugurated the new covenant. But, as the author says, the old covenant was not faultless. So what was wrong with it? Well, look in verse 8. The author of Hebrews says he finds fault with them, referring to the people of Israel. They were the weak spot in the covenant. What's the last part of verse 9? God finds 
fault with the people because they did not continue in His covenant. That's where the fault lay with the people of Israel. Because of their sin, they failed to persevere in obedient faith. Paul says in Romans 8.3 that the law was weakened by sinful flesh. The law told them what to do and what not to do, but it gave them no power or ability to obey it. Oh, the people of Israel promised to obey the covenant. We Many times in Exodus, we see them making this promise. The first one is in Exodus 24, 7, where Moses read the covenant to the people, and here's how they responded. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They were determined, right? And then Moses almost immediately goes up, Mount Sinai and spends 40 days and 40 nights with God, and what happens? When he comes back down, they have convinced Aaron to make a golden calf, and now they're worshiping the golden calf and ascribing to the golden calf all of the power and all of the, the wondrous works that God did. And they're misbehaving in all kinds of ways, breaking God's law at every turn. They couldn't keep their end of the bargain for even 40 days. And this happens over and over again as we read through the history of Israel. And finally, they get to the brink of the promised land and they refuse to go in and take the land, trusting in the power of God. And God finally has had enough. And that's where we read in verse 9, where it says, God, because they did not continue in my covenant, God says, I showed no concern for them. And indeed, all but two of that generation died over the next 40 years in the wilderness. Only those two faithful spies who encouraged the people to go and take the land. And so then another generation rises up during those 40 years. And now the book of Deuteronomy is... It's kind of like one long sermon that Moses is preaching to this new generation and teaching them the law and recounting for them the history of what their fathers did. And over and over again in Deuteronomy, we read God saying to the people through Moses, here are the blessings that I will give you if you will obey here are the curses you will incur if you do not. One time he says, today I set before you life and death, blessings and curses. And he pleads with them, choose life. But over and over again, Israel did not obey. Over and over again, they chose evil over good. Over and over again, they chose death over life. Why? Because sin had hardened their hearts. They needed an intervention from God. Listen to what Moses says to this generation in Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 through 4. He says, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, 
to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But listen to this. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Why didn't they obey? They didn't have a heart to understand. Now, don't hear me saying in this that we should blame God for the failure of the covenant. God didn't force them to do that. He just let them be their naturally fallen human selves. He had not only not the ability to be obedient, but didn't have the desire to be obedient. It was the people who were the weakness in the old covenant. And so God makes the declaration in Jeremiah 31 that we read in verse 8 of our passage today. Behold, the days are coming when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And the new covenant will be different and it will be better because, we read in verse 6, it is an active and better promises. So let's look at those promises. I see four promises here. The first one is that the new covenant is internal. The old covenant was external. They were words inscribed on tablets of stone. And even though Israel knew that those tablets of stone contained the words of God, and even though they had seen countless demonstrations of its power, they were unable to consistently obey the law because they were not being transformed by it. It lacked the ability to perfect them and to make them righteous. In the New Covenant, reading in verse 10, God promises to put His law in your mind and to write them on the heart of His people. And this takes place through a process of spiritual transformation. Under the New Covenant, they get a spiritual heart transplant. I want you to look with me at, at a somewhat parallel passage to Jeremiah 31. It's in Ezekiel 36. I'm going to read verse 26. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, God speaking, and I will give you, God speaking to Israel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A heart transplant. He's going to remove that diseased, sin-ridden heart and he's going to put within it a heart that desires to obey God, a heart that loves God and wants to do his bidding. Now, how's that possible? God not only writes the law into their heart, but the second promise, God implants within them his Holy Spirit. We see in the last, I get that from the last part of verse 10, where God says, under the new covenant, I will be their God and they will be my people. 
And I can hear some of you thinking, oh, hold on a minute, Pastor Steve. I remember you standing right there in that same place on the stage when we were preaching through Exodus, and you preached that God said to them over and over, I will be your God, and they and you will be my people. So what's different? Glad you asked. Under the Old Covenant, God was indeed their God, and they were His people. And God did indeed dwell in the midst of the people, but it was in a dwelling with them in a different way than we experience. His visible presence is of His glory, or hidden behind the curtain of the most holy place. And you remember that only the high priests could go in there, and that was only once a year. And then out in the tabernacle, the priests ministered, but the common people weren't allowed anywhere near the Holy Spirit. They could not approach God. Why? Because it was for their own protection, right? God, God told them, don't let them near or my holiness might break out against them and kill them. So while Yahweh was their God, and they were His people, and while God worked mightily on their behalf to free them from slavery in Egypt, to provide for them and lead them through the wilderness, and to fight for them against their enemies, His presence, for the most part, was external. They could not truly draw near to Him because of their sin. However, under the New Covenant, God makes this promise. I want to go back to that Ezekiel 26 passage. I want to read the next verse, verse 27. Ezekiel 36, 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will put my spirit within you. And that will cause God's people to obey Him. No longer will God's presence be external. Under the new covenant, God puts His Spirit within His people. It's a much more intimate level of dwelling with them. It's not unlike a newly married couple that no longer have to keep a distance between them as they did in courtship. But but now they know each other intimately. God dwells intimately within you to cause you to want to be obedient to the laws He's written in your heart and to empower you to obey and to fight against sin and to lead you into all truth. And I just want to say, this is free, don't forget that. Don't forget that it is God's power that works in you. Don't try to grow up and mature in your own strength. Don't trust in that. Trust in the power of God instead. The Holy Spirit not only empowers you to fight against sin and to be obedient, but He promises that He will lead you into all truth. And the truth that He leads you in is not just knowledge about God, but knowledge of God. Verse 11 says that under the new covenant, no one will need to teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord. 
Now, that doesn't mean that there is no need for teaching in the church. But the negative there is not applied to the act of teaching, but rather to the content. We don't need to teach each other in the church to know the Lord because everyone who's truly in the church already does. However, under the old covenant, you were a member of the community by physical descent. You were born into it. And so not everybody in the community of Israel knew the Lord by faith. And so they needed to teach each other. You need to, you need to do more than just obey these regulations. You need to know the Lord. But under the new covenant, that was not necessary. Therefore, every person who believes from belief to the greatest has a relationship with God and knows Him on a personal level. The New Covenant promises that God, so far, have been that God will write the law in the hearts of the people, that God will dwell within them, that every member of the community of God will know Him personally and intimately. And the fourth promise, we look in verse 12, is that God will be merciful to the iniquities of His people and He will remember their sins no more. Under the Old Covenant, the people were instructed to bring sacrifices to atone for the sin that the blood of wolves and goats could not forgive their sins or cleanse them from unrighteousness. A greater sacrifice is needed as we will talk about in the coming weeks. The blood of Jesus Christ, the pure and righteous Lamb of God, is the only sacrifice worthy enough and powerful enough to truly atone for the sins of God's people and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. For those who trust in Jesus Christ, for salvation, God looks at Jesus' death on the cross and pardons your sins. Because of the cross of Jesus, your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. Because of Jesus, God looks on you with mercy and your iniquities are forgiven. These four precious promises are the basis for the author's contention that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And that Jesus, as the mediator and high priest of the new covenant, is far superior to the priests of the old covenant. As for the old covenant, the author says in verse 13, it has been made obsolete. Growing old, he says, and ready to vanish away. And if we're right about the date that this letter was written, it was only a few years later that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and the sacrifices stopped. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says to those first century Jewish Christians, why would you want to cling to something that even your own prophet Jeremiah said is going to be replaced? Instead, hold fast by faith to your 
superior high priest who mediates a superior covenant and acted on superior promises. You know, as I studied this passage the last couple of weeks, the last part of verse 9 flipped me up more than once. Let's read it again. It starts with, For they did not continue in my covenant and enter it, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. You know, I found that to be unsettling primarily because I know my own heart. As the song we sang says, I am prone to wander and to leave the God I love. But then God began to speak to me through these promises. And you know another great difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? The Old Covenant was conditional on the obedience of the people without the help of God. The New Covenant, God has taken matters into His own hands. And He has written His laws on my heart. And He has placed His Holy Spirit inside of me. And I have a personal relationship with Him. I know Him. And therefore, I know that He will preserve me. I know that I will continue in this covenant not only for the rest of my life, but for all eternity. And if you are a child of God, the same is true for you. So rather than be alarmed by verse 9, Tiny Ridge Church, take comfort from it. Take comfort from the promises of a God whose Word will stand. Take comfort in the promises of God for whom it is impossible for Him to lie. Your God is working in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. And He will see to it. He is more committed than you are, Pastor Jason reminds me often. More committed than you are for you to persevere to the end. And therefore, He forgives your sin. While the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to cleanse you from sin, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, holy, unstained, innocent, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, is sufficient to cover your sin. And it is for Jesus' sake, and for the sake of God the Father's own great name that God will be merciful toward your iniquities and remember them no more. God has established a new covenant, one that is internal, because He's placed His Spirit within you to dwell with you, to have a relationship. And He will preserve you for all eternity. So worship Him. Give 
prayed to Him for His glorious work. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, and you have had that profession of faith affirmed by a church in baptism, I invite you in just a minute to come to share with us in the Lord's table. At Piney Ridge Church, we exit our roads to the left, come to the front, pick up the elements of communion. We return to our seats, and there we take it with our family, with friends, or if you prefer this, by yourself. And I encourage you as you do this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So I want to just call you to remembrance this morning that Jesus Christ gave his body and his blood so that this new covenant could be established in him. And now he's interceding for you, the right hand of God. Take a moment to absorb that. And then let your hearts respond to that in praise as you take communion together. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then I encourage you to, to not to take a communion because it's not for you, not yet. But instead, I plead with you if, if you think you feel the call of God in your heart to believe, respond in faith. I would love to talk with you. I'll be in the back with Sandy. You can come back and talk to us about the gospel, or you can fill out a card and give it to me on the way out. Or put it in the offering box, or email us at prcpastors at tinyridgechurch.org. And we would love to talk with you about the gospel. Also, I'll be back there. Sandy and I would love to pray with anyone that has something they would like us to pray with them about. But for those of you who should, you may not come to the Lord's table.